again to Everyday Holiness, a Faith Indie podcast. This is your host, Dan Allen, Associate Director of Spirituality and Service. And we thank you for joining us for this podcast, where we explore the lives and inspiring stories of those in the Notre Dame family, especially how they have come to understand their vocations and are trying to live holy lives. My guests this week are Syl and Vicki Schieber. Sill received his MA from Notre Dame in 1972 and his PhD in 1974, both degrees in economics. He and Vicki were married on campus at the Basilica of the Sacred Heart in December of 1971, and they have a very inspirational, heart-wrenching, and thought-provoking story to share. And I'm just so honored that they've given us some of their time today. So Sill and Vicki, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. Very good. So we like to start at the beginnings of your lives. So if you could each tell us some about your childhood and upbringing, some of the important details of those moments. I was born and raised in the Midwest, state of Illinois. My family had a uh, big interest in the farming community. They weren't farmers, but they worked in building a lot of the equipment for the farmers. And and they worked for John Deere for years. And... um, it was a very special place for us to be. We really felt like it was a family. And I was number five out of eight children. And uh, it took us a long time just to remember everybody's name. (laughs) (laughs) Especially when somebody got in trouble. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And they didn't want you to remember the right right name. (laughs) No, uh, but we were very uh, strongly supported in our uh, upbringing with the groundwork of the Catholic faith. Our parents were both raised Catholics. We came from large Catholic families. And uh, it was very important to them that we value our religion and our skills that we can do on the ways we could help people and following all the principles of our faith. And so I went to a, as as my siblings also did, to Catholic grade school in the community. Most of my other siblings were at the same school, but broadly different grades. And uh, then went to Catholic high schools and then uh, proceeded to go on to colleges. There were a lot of colleges and universities in the area, but not all of them were Catholics, but they were very good at schools. Mm-hmm. And then we got on to, had to think of getting a good job and community. And and there were so many uh, positive uh, things that brought that about for them, if good experiences. And then they went on, I think, to get good jobs and a good home and good families. And I, I can't think of a place that would have been more ho- helpful and holy raising your kids than in that experience that I had, for sure. I was born and raised in Northwest Missouri in a farming community. Uh, I was also uh, one of eight children. (laughs) My oldest brother, the firstborn of the family, died when he was 14 months old. He Mm. died of pneumonia because it was uh, before the the era of penicillin. Yeah. So none of the rest of the siblings uh, knew him, but the, the... Seven of us were raised, again, in a very Catholic family. We grew up in the shadow of a Benedictine monastery uh, in uh, northwest Missouri. Uh, Some people know know of it. The uh, Basilica of the Immaculate Conception is is there. Mm -hmm. The town in which it's located is known as Conception, Missouri. Yes. I went to a local grade school, which was a Catholic grade school. And then I went to a Catholic high school, boarding high school, 
just outside of Omaha, Nebraska, also uh, run by the uh, the Benedictines. Uh, and then when I graduated from high school, I ended up going to a small liberal arts Catholic college in Atchison, Kansas, uh, now known as Benedictine College. So I had a very, very strong religious uh, background, uh, indoctrinated by the, uh, the Benedictines, whose uh, motto is Ora et Labora, pray and work, was uh, inculcated with that. <laughs> Went to uh, graduate school. Well, I finished, I graduated from college in uh, the spring of 1968. At that time, uh, the uh, endeavors in Vietnam were going on. I volunteered actually twice for, for the uh, Navy and uh, had a defective back. So they decided they didn't want anything to do with me. Okay. And that's uh, when I... Uh, decided to uh, to go to Notre Dame to graduate school. And I spent, well, I was there three years full-time and then uh, started my career uh, while actually still in graduate school, working on a research project, a federally funded research project in Gary, Indiana. And uh, that's where I met Vicki. She was there. She, she was studying at the time uh, at Washington University in St. Louis. And, and we both ended up Assigned there, uh, working on this project, looking for data for for research purposes. And mm. at the end of 1971, then we got married and stayed briefly in the area. Moved to uh, the Washington D.C. area, living in Maryland in 1972, and we've lived in Maryland ever since uh, and since that time. Great, thank you. That's uh, a wonderful foundation for your story and marriage together. Vicki, what do you remember about meeting Syl and how did that progress towards the decision to get married? You know, when you go on a date with someone, you start sitting down talking about all, you know, your back, your experience, what you did and thing. We just kept, everything is really, well, we, that's the same thing I am. I had the same, <laughs> way, same experience. And we just, you know, it's kind of one of those things you looked at. I thought to myself, when I looked at him, boy, I thank God this was meant to be. I really think mm. this was supposed to happen. And it made me very, very happy. <laughs> and so I stayed, I was there because, uh, stayed there actually because of uh, my first job in graduate school. I got hired at the University of Maryland Graduate School to teach. Mm-hmm. So I was teaching at the university there, and I um, really, really loved the teaching world. I had been had a lot of experience with that, and and still also had a lot of interest in the academic side. So I could just go on and on, uh, <laughs> on and on, Dad. All these things kind of matched up, and you know, you get this feeling like, okay, God, this must be where we are supposed to be going. So yeah, when you have that that common foundation. On, on especially a lot of the important things, um, other things you can you can work out. Yes. Now, so we uh, mentioned that uh, you studied economics. Vicki, uh, were you also in economics or were you in a different area? No, I was in a different area uh, because of my background and some of my early training and working in the city of Chicago. My job had a lot to do with working in the inner city, the poverty areas of Chicago. Mm. And I was, my foundation academically was more in social work and community planning. 
And uh, so I was working in the inner city areas and with poverty. And it was a, a very educational experience and taught me so much about the world and life and everything. And uh, it has given me, I think, some of my guiding principles it, all the way up to my age now, well into my 70s. It was a, a very positive experience. And I, and then I went on to graduate school, too, in I was, uh, went to DePaul, DePaul for graduate school. For a master's. Master's. And then I started working on my PhD. I had a, uh, some coursework. And then I didn't think uh, that was the way, the direction I really wanted to go. And it was very complicated to fit in with what both of us were trying to do. So I just stayed there and continued to work and, and teach. And, and I'm very happy there. Very happy. Great, great. Well, so I, I'm from Western Kansas, so I know Benedictine College and Conception okay. somewhat oh, well. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's a personal connection there. Well, some people call them peak and plumb town. You peak around the corner, you plumb you're plumb out of town. town. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> some familiarity there. What was it about Notre Dame that attracted you and any important moments while you were here on campus as a graduate student? Well, for, for, first of all, with the activities going on in Vietnam when I was finishing up college, that was a preoccupation with most of the students my age. Uh, sure. Most of the people in my class were, were going to end up going into the military. I, there were certainly some people who, who at that juncture were already beginning to question what we were doing there. Mm-hmm. And when I uh, when I, I actually took my physical, my induction physical, I had taken the Navy OCS exams, officer candidate school exams in the late fall. I took my physical over the Christmas holidays and I was uh, told that I would never uh, I would never be accepted in the military. So then I had to decide what I was uh, was going to do. I had had made applications actually to three graduate schools, uh, Indiana University, uh, Marquette, and uh, Notre Dame, and was accepted uh, at all three and given some, some financial assistance offers uh, at each of them. My maternal grandmother uh, made it very clearly known that, uh, that if her uh, Irish heritage uh, grandson wanted to stay in her graces, there was only one choice to be made. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, that, that certainly played a role, but it was not the uh, the deciding factor. Sure. I uh, came up that uh, spring and uh, saw the campus and, and kind of fell in love with the environment. And so uh, decided that that's where... Uh, where I wanted to be, I, uh, you know, the, the three years that I was there full time, and then we were, I was in Gary, Indiana for the next, I don't know, year, year and a half. Mm-hmm. I was back and forth fairly regularly, still taking some, uh, some classes. I had finished my uh, written and, and oral exams, but I, you know, it was, uh, it was just such a pleasant and kind of wholesome environment. There was, there was a lot of conflict going on in the world at that time. In the spring was Kent State. Right. And at one juncture, there were, were police cars uh, covered uh, not very far off campus because during that period, they were afraid that there were, was going to be some problem at, at Notre Dame. And, you know, the 
I think everybody in the administration at that time understood the seriousness of the discussion that was going on at the at the university at the college academy level mm-hmm. and basically told the police to go mind their own business uh, uh, we would take care of of what was going on at Notre Dame amongst ourselves father hesberg was was quite quite a moral leader at that juncture and in some regards you know it it was complicated i was a research assistant during all of that commotion and the university shut down for the better part of a week just as it was leading into final exam week Hmm. and it made a lot of extra work for us and at the time you know i'm not sure we fully appreciated how important the university's reaction to everything was and and the the fact that we really sat down and talked about what was going on in the world and, and how we should be evaluating things in retrospect, stepping away, you know, it was a very important formative moment for somebody uh, just embarking on a, on a career. And I've, I've worked all my career on policy issues. I've, I've worked in the consulting industry for years, uh, but I've written and done a lot of work in the, in the policy environment. Uh, so that was a, that was an important formative time for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've always appreciated that Notre Dame continues to be a place of dialogue. And from what I've read and heard about that time, that was really important in the in the way that the, you know, the tension was handled here on campus. Now, you, you had told me before we started that you got married on campus. And wow, you're coming up on 50 years of marriage this year. Uh, that doesn't happened by accident, of course, obviously a lot of time and effort <laughs> that, that goes into that. What have been some of the important lessons of marriage that, you know, have you've really had the lived experience of? Well, I think one of the most difficult hills that we had to climb was uh, we had we had two beautiful children. Mm-hmm. Shannon, Shannon uh, was born in uh, 1974. Uh, she was born on August the 8th as I was driving home in the wee hours that morning from uh, from the hospital after uh, she had arrived. Uh, on the news that morning was the announcement that uh, Richard Nixon was uh, was going to resign as president. Okay. He actually resigned the next day at noon. And at exactly that time, there was a graduation uh, going on at the University of Notre Dame at which I was awarded my PhD, but I was not there to uh, receive it because there were other activities going on <laughs> in Maryland at that time that I needed to be paying attention to. Okay. So Sean came along in February of 1976. They were 18 months apart. Both uh, wonderful children, extremely gifted. Shannon in particular was extremely gifted. By the time she was 18 months old, she knew her ABCs. She was reading at three and and a stellar student throughout. In high school, uh, she ended up being the president of her student body. It was a high school with about 2,000 students. It was a suburban school. Mixed population was uh, the uh, some Latin Americans were moving into the community by that time. And, and uh, there was a, a fairly substantial African-American uh, 
group in the uh, in the student body. So there were mm-hmm. there were some you know some tense issues that she had to deal with. Yeah, she uh, was uh, accepted uh, at quite a number of universities, including Notre Dame. She had a special place in her heart for Notre Dame, but uh, she decided to go to Duke University for a couple of reasons. One, it was warmer down there than in South Bend. Uh, the other thing was she was an avid uh, equestrian, and Duke had a uh, equestrian uh, team, and she ended up her last year there as co-captain of the equestrian team. She graduated from Duke in three years with a triple major, mathematics, economics, and philosophy. Wow. And was uh, was quite a uh, gifted uh, student. She was in graduate school in the fall of 97 at the Wharton School in Philadelphia. And the day before she took her last final exam to come home for Mother's Day weekend in 1998, a a serial rapist broke into her apartment and attacked her and uh, ended up uh, murdering her. So uh, we uh, we had a uh, quite uh, substantial issue that we had to deal with, and I think that's the way you you uh, you found us. Uh, I recently penned an article that was uh, published in Notre Dame Magazine mm-hmm. about our experience with her murder and being confronted with the death penalty, mm-hmm. and we decided it took four years for them to uh, to find the assailant. And we had decided well before that that we wanted nothing to do with uh, with a death penalty prosecution and the, and the potential uh, ramifications of that. So we took a very public stand against it and got into a fairly heated uh, discussion uh, with the district attorney in Philadelphia over what was the appropriate penalties to seek for Shannon's murder. Mm-hmm. But we prevailed. And then Vicky became... Uh, extremely active in the anti-death penalty movement. We decided collectively that one of us needed to continue to work to uh, support the, the family, but uh, we could at least uh, jointly uh, dedicate our, uh, our efforts to opposing the death penalty. And I'll let her tell about some of her uh, experiences there. Uh, yes, I just couldn't imagine being responsible on somebody's death. I was the one that, that I was the one who requested that that would be the sentencing. Hmm. I just felt someday I may have to walk into the gates of heaven, and this is you know you wanted you wanted to have him put to death. No, I didn't. I couldn't. I couldn't live with that. And I knew that that from all the teachings that we had been through in the Catholic Church and all the readings we've done over things that that would not be acceptable. And I also had done a lot of social work in that period. And I went out and got to talk to many of the families that had already had gone through the terrible process of, you know, actually getting that sentence and being put to death. And it just taught us and my husband agreed with me, too, that uh, it just we had so much evidence how much it destroys families. Hmm. And it would be, you know, 10, 20, 30 years sometimes before they never put them that if and when they actually got that sentence. And meanwhile, the family was going through all kinds of conflicts and family issues. And so we just said, no, we're going to have peace at the beginning. We're going to try to work with families and, exp- you know, tell them our story and what we had gone through and why it was so 
healing and helpful for us and with the great support of our Catholic faith, let me tell you for sure, that um, we could uh, do some good things in her honor. Instead of being angry and wanting this and that and this for the trial and this for this, we wanted to find something good to come out of it. And I, I saw what happened to families that when they when they started to you know let let this anger just drain out of them, take all that energy, do something positive to memor- to be in memory of their their child or whoever family member who died, and um, that really was an enormously healing process for both Sil and me. Mm-hmm. We uh, got uh, to go to public speaking. We went. We were invited to go to, to colleges and universities and tell our stories. We would go to families and in local church groups. Uh, the Catholic Church was very, very supportive of inviting us to different uh, organizations that would uh, bring these issues up in there in the Catholic Church meetings, etc. And then I really got actively involved in the the organization to uh, get rid of the death penalty. <laughs> That was a big goal of mine. I kept telling Shannon up there in heaven, honey, I can't come home until we get this death penalty done here. So you have to keep going and pulling some strings for mom and dad that, uh, you know, we get this bill passed in this state or whatever. And and it was just a very, very positive experience by and large. When Shannon died, there were only nine states that did not have the death penalty on the books. Of course, when, you know, now I think we're up to what, 24? 23. Plus, there's three states. And there's three other states that, that, uh, that have a moratorium. Have a moratorium. And, uh, uh, and it's not looked at as nearly the kind of system that was very active when we started this whole process with Shannon's murder. And I still am very, very active and wanting to have a big celebration <laughs> with my husband and, the, and uh, so many people when we can actually get the United States to abolish it uh, uh, for the whole country. Mm-hmm. So your prayers are always welcomed in. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. We will join you in that. Yeah, just thank you both for sharing this aspect of your story. I did come across it in Notre Dame Magazine, and obviously we've corresponded since then. And for me personally, I've just been thinking about and struggling with how, as a parent, I would uh, deal with uh, a tragedy of unspeakable proportions. What was your journey like in those early days of, I mean, we're, we're some years removed from it now, but I'm sure the acute tragedy was just overwhelming. How did you move through some of that grief and, and challenge to this more peaceful place that we hear you describe now? One of the things that I think a family encounters when a loved one is taken like that is that it's, it's such as a sudden shock. When you lose a child, it's, you know, part of you dies. Yes. Uh, I, there's no other way to describe it. For me, as I wrote in the, um, in the article, Shannon was killed early on a Thursday morning. As I indicated, it was Mother's Day weekend, uh, which hmm. kind of was double jeopardy. We were at Mass on that Saturday evening, and... The mass, the, our assistant pastor, uh, Father Percival da Silva, had, had told the congregation at the beginning of mass uh, what had happened and asked the congregation to pray for us. 
that, you know, the mass was moving along uh, normally till we got to the Lord's Prayer. And when I got to the phrase, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Yeah. Uh, it just took my breath away. I, I had... I had never fully grasped the meaning of that. I grew up in a family where we said a nightly rosary. I had gone to Catholic school after Catholic school. In high school, we had daily mass. Uh, you know, how many thousands of times had I said that, uh, that prayer? Mm -hmm. And I was just stunned by... Uh, by the meaning that night, but I, at that, that quickly I grasped <laughs> in a way I'd never grasped before what meaning a Christ, being a Christian meant. Yeah. And what was, uh, what was expected of, you know, as, as we got further involved, I think we both came to realize that not everyone shares, shares the faith. Mm-hmm. And not everyone perceives the faith quite the way that, that we did. Mm -hmm. And we came to understand that to carry the discussion on in a, in a broader, in a broader community, in a broader context, there were other issues that were, were applicable as well. But, but for us, I think in both cases, it was, it was the singular expression of what Christianity is all about that led us to our conclusion. You know, Vicki mentioned at the beginning, uh, she was one of eight children. One of her brothers had died in a, in a tragic motorcycle accident when he was quite young, a scooter accident. Mm -hmm. uh, my oldest brother had died. So we both came from these large families. Neither, neither one of us had a single member of our family that disagreed with us. So, you know, I think, I think we both learned at the table where we uh, we had uh, grown up and and eaten together in the in the family communities we grew up in, what this was all about, it was just more deeply rooted than we uh, than we fully understood, till we came to this uh, this hill we had to climb, and then it became fairly apparent what we were, uh, what was expected of us, and and we also I think came to understand over time that it really. Uh, in, in the long term, letting go of the anger benefited us more than it benefited and, and anyone else. Mm -hmm. We've gotten to know some people that were have, have were sentenced to death for for crimes, who were later exonerated, and and that experience takes quite a toll on people. We've also gotten to know some people who, like us, have lost someone who was extremely near and dear to them, who, who embraced the idea of pursuing the death penalty. Okay. And we've seen it destroy their lives. Mm -hmm. So we've come to believe that, you know, we're the lucky ones. We, we had this, we had this lifeline that we could grab hold of. And it's, it, in many regards, saved us. So, mm -hmm. you know, for us, it's, some people thought we were being extremely generous uh, beneficial in in the stance we took, the graciousness, the benefits uh, accrued to us. Uh, we believe in the long term. Mm -hmm. Vicky, would you echo? I mean, I, I hear you're agreeing there. Uh, yeah, just give us some of your experience of all that, and and again, how you came to some semblance of peace with this. Oh yeah, um, 
again, I credit a lot of the integration of the emotion and the, and the, yeah, I, to, to my background in, in social work and, and some of the, the, the kind of educational things I had to learn and go through experiences. But the, this one um, was an incredibly powerful, powerful lesson for us. And, and it was a gift. I was named uh, abolitionists of the year back in that time period where they gave awards to people who had more people. <laughs> 2011, 2011, I guess it was, right? And I would say to people, you know, that this is a, a gift, but it was something that I felt came to me because of all the work that I had done with people who had been through such unbelievably horrible circumstances. And I was trying to get them to say, you know, to learn to, to think of this, to look at the contrast between how you how you deal with this. And if you hold on to your anger and your bitterness and your your uh, desire to pay back and, you know, it isn't going to help you heal. And uh, so I, I've used that a lot in my teaching when I was doing that with various uh, classes. I was, uh, you know, the education uh, part for that, for that. And that's where I brought in a lot of the social, the uh, death penalty issues. And I had so many people, I can't tell you how many, that came back to me even years later when I was in the and still in the university system. Because, you know, I thought about that a long time. I didn't understand that when you said that. But I thought about it. And I thought of it. And, you know, it really made such a difference in how I approached all this. I would never thought I would have gone down that road. Hopefully it's not because they had someone die in their family, but mm -hmm. you know, it, 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 people learn from these things. This is this is what I want it all to be about. Yeah, we've reflected with married couples in in earlier seasons about well, on your wedding days you say your vows, but those vows don't always have they don't have the stories yet. And oh, right, so true. This, I'm I'm hearing a similar similar thing of. You know, we say these the words of the Lord's Prayer all the time, and yeah, this is what we profess, this is what we believe, but I, I can't think of hardly a, a bigger test of that principle of forgive us our trespasses as we forgive in, in, in a case like this of, you know, losing a child in such a horrible way. So uh, thank you for sharing that. How was the perpetrator eventually caught? And you mentioned this kind of uh, somewhat public debate with the DA about what to pursue. Can you give us some into, insight into those days? When, it, as I indicated, it took four years for them to capture the uh, the assailant. By the time they captured him, he was attacking young women out in Fort Collins, Colorado, hmm. and we had made it known to the police and the prosecutors along the way that we were opposed to the death penalty in the case. And they had kept kind of pushing us to keep quiet about that, that somehow it was going to complicate their ability to prosecute, prosecute, him. Uh, yeah. prosecute him for the crimes he had committed. Mm -hmm. And so as soon as they caught him, the, the press started really focusing on this issue. It had, it had been publicly known, but nobody had paid much attention to it till they caught the fellow. Uh, and then all of a sudden, it, it almost became as much a point of, of news as the capture itself. Hmm. So shortly after he was captured, Vicki 
was quoted in an article. The article was kind of laying out our opposition to the death penalty. And Vicky was quoted as saying, we have to be forgiven, forgiving. And the, uh, the DA went out the next day and held a press conference and said she really didn't care what the Shebers uh, thought about this. The appropriate penalty in this case was a death penalty. Hmm. So, of course, this got some uh, headlines at the time sure. uh, in Philadelphia. And then there was a, there was a columnist there. Uh, he's still around. His name Smirconish. is Michael Smirconish. He wrote an open letter. Uh, actually, it was directed to Vicky uh, because of this quotation that uh, we had to be forgiving people, saying that we really didn't have a right to make this decision. It was printed in the uh, in the uh, Philadelphia Daily News, hmm. and the Philadelphia Daily News was very gracious and let us write a fairly lengthy rejoinder, and we we explained that. You know, dear Mr. Smirconish, it was a it was a letter to, to Michael Smirconish that, first of all, we came to this decision on the basis of our our religious heritage, mm-hmm. uh, our, our backgrounds, having been raised as Catholics, as Christians, and that the teachings, uh, the teachings of Christ are, as far as we were concerned, were pretty straightforward. Uh, it's taken a while for the church to kind of shut the door on, on capital punishment, mm-hmm. uh, but it's but it it has gotten there. Uh, but we went through the you know the racial disparities, the economic disparities, the geographic variations. You know, if you if you kill someone in Philadelphia, or at least at that time, a similar crime committed in Pittsburgh was treated very differently. Mm-hmm. There was probably a it was 20 times more likely you would face the death penalty if you committed that crime in Philadelphia than in uh, than in Pittsburgh. Okay. In in Missouri, it was it was probably 20 times more likely you would face a, the death penalty if you committed that crime in St. Louis than in Kansas City. Hmm. In Texas, it was 20 times more likely if you committed the the crime in Houston than in Dallas, and and so. There were all of these irregularities in how it was applied that we uh, we simply could not support being party to this. And you know, typically in these in these prosecutions, they want the they want the survivors to come in and make a statement about what a devastating effect this has had on their uh, on their lives as they're seeking these death penalties. Most people don't realize when a, when a person is put to death by the death penalty. The, the cause of death on the death certificate is homicide. Mm-hmm. And we simply didn't want to be party to that. Yeah, that that wasn't going to obviously bring your daughter's earthly life back. Absolutely yeah, Absolutely. And as Vicky mentioned, that push for vengeance, and, and from what I understand, the length of time that it would actually take to get to an execution oh, yeah. could be all-consuming. The the average the average execution today there's still some going on, it is not is not carried out for eighteen to twenty years mm-hmm. uh, yeah, until after the uh, after the sentencing, and so people are going through this this you know recurring set of hearings and and they're just they've got this pent up anger and and it's it's just it's destructive to their health it oh, just God. destroys people. Mm. In our case, 
The fellow was captured on the 23rd day of April. When we wrote our letter, fairly quickly, the, uh, the prosecuting attorney, the district attorney, uh, realized that we had put a hurdle in front of her that she couldn't get over. Mm-hmm. The, he had indicated to his attorneys in, uh, in Colorado that if he did not face the death penalty, there was only one murder in a string of 14 attacks, that if he did not face the death penalty, he was willing to plead guilty to all of the, all of the attacks. Mm. And so when they knew they weren't going to be able to pursue the death penalty, they went out and they negotiated a plea deal with him that, mm-hmm. that they would sentence him to, uh, if he would plead guilty, they would sentence him to life in prison without parole rather than, than uh, trying to get a, a death penalty uh, sentencing. So they, they negotiated this, uh, this plea deal. We, held the, we went to the, uh, the sentencing hearing in Philadelphia on the 30th day of May. Mm-hmm. So in a little over five weeks, wow. between five and six weeks, we were completely done with the whole legal process. And, and you know, juxtapose that against if, if we had pursued, if we had gone along with them on the death penalty and they had gotten the death penalty, we would still be dealing with that sentence not being carried out hmm. today. Yeah. Since 1976, Pennsylvania has only put three people to death and it's only three people who gave up their, their appeals. And, and so we would still be dealing with this. Mm-hmm. So we've had the last 20, 19 years, whatever it is, <laughs> with going on about our lives, trying to, trying to do something constructive, rather being caught in the morass of hate and anger. And We were blessed. We were very blessed. Thank you, God. We were free. Yeah. Now, it didn't, didn't, didn't stop the DA. She went out the day after the sentencing and said she still didn't care what the Shebers thought, but that was the appropriate penalty. Okay. For us, it was not, and we're glad that we didn't have to go through it. I mean, you were already victims of this, of this difficult, extremely difficult situation, but not to be victimized over and over uh, seems really important, really instructive to us. Very, very important. If you respect life, you have to respect life, even when it's inconvenient. Yeah, yeah. Even when it's inconvenient and when it's hard and debates about abortion and the death penalty and everything in between, it's these principles of faith that, that often guide us. And I, I draw inspiration. Certainly, you mentioned Jesus and his life in the Gospels. Vicki, I'm, I'm curious about your connection to Mary through this, because she was a mother who lost a child. Did that change at all as you came to reflect on Jesus's passion and death? Oh, yeah, I followed it very, very closely in many ways. One of my favorite things is that picture they have on our the center of our uh, church. And one of the, the where Mary and one, two other women are looking up at Jesus. And, and he, had been, he had been nailed to the cross and everything. Mm-hmm. And you could just see him looking at each other and just watching the terrible pain as he was obviously dying, as it, you know, as time flew by, as pretty soon he was going to not make it. And all I could think of was, I'm sure any mother would think this, how would it be if you, if you had to watch your child or if you had to, you know, endure that sort of thing, I, how, how horrible this would be. I, you know, I can't, I can't imagine it. I can't imagine it. And I, I, so I, that gave me this such great empathy when I, when I 
see other families when they're trying to make, you know, dealing with the going through all this to the final, you know, burial, everything. I just think, oh, God, you know, please give them a lot of grace. Mm. I know their pain. Please help them, help them. In my research uh, into your story, I saw an interview that you actually spoke with the assailant's mother. What prompted you to do that? And what was that conversation like? Oh, yes. Oh, good. I'm glad you asked that. I, I really, that was a very, very, very special time. I, you know, as we were going through the very early stages and thinking about it, I just wondered what, you know, here I am experiencing and the mother of someone who lost their life. What must this mother be going like, going through, trying to think of what's going to happen to her, her son and, mm-hmm. and what's, you know, what are they going to have to endure to go through the process of the legal system and everything. But the mother was, oh, she was so, so grateful that I uh, wanted to speak with her. She said, I, I just, she wanted to say to me, she wanted to say to me, I am so sorry that my son did this to you. I'm so sorry that he caused, I didn't see that this was a case. I, I knew he had had problems. I had been working with him. He has had some problems and, but I never thought it would ever come to a place like this, mm-hmm. you know, but but she just, you, know, you could just hear the tears. <laughs> you could hear the, the pain that was going through her. And uh, I, I think we both found it a very positive experience, extremely positive. Thank you for sharing that. Syl, I think there's a hurdle that's sometimes hard for even really faithful Catholics and Christians, people of, of tremendous goodwill to, to overcome in that this was absolutely horrific, what happened to your daughter. Uh, certainly evil, certainly sinful. And I think there's a fear sometimes that in not pursuing vengeance, we're excusing the, the heinous thing that was done. How, how have you, if you've encountered that in people of faith, how have you explained to them that, that you're not excusing what was happening, what happened, but that you're, you're pursuing a greater good, I guess? Well, there were a variety of things going on uh, that related to Shannon's death that also had our attention. The police in Philadelphia were not properly handling reported sexual assaults. Mm -hmm. They were classifying about 30% of reported rapes as non-crimes and about 25% of all sexual assaults as non-crimes. And in fact, this man had had attacked four women in Shannon's immediate neighborhood over the prior 11 months before he attacked her. The first woman, they basically, uh, when she uh, told, called police and told them he'd broken in on her, that they didn't believe her that he could have gotten into her apartment the way he got into her apartment. Uh, and so they didn't. Uh, they classified her case as a non-crime. Hmm. The second woman was strangled into unconsciousness. She was so badly injured, she was in the hospital for two days. They had a rape kit. They had semen. They had uh, blood samples. Uh, they classified her case as a non-crime because in her after the attack, she could not recall details of, of what happened. Wow. It's fairly, actually fairly common in these, uh, these crimes uh, because, of the, because of the reaction to the trauma. So they had a policy that they would not 
notify the community that there was a serial rapist in the community unless they had three crimes that were linked together. Hmm. Shannon was stalked two nights before she was killed. She had gone to a movie and this guy started following her home and he, uh, he figured out where she lived and, and then attacked two nights later. It took about a year and a half before uh, these two prior cases were actually identified. The third and the fourth case had been linked, and it took nine months to link those to Shannon's case, even though they happened within two blocks of her apartment. Same exactly MO, except they didn't kill Hmm. in that case. Shannon was the only case where the victim screamed, Shannon screamed, the neighbor called 911. The police stood outside her door uh, arguing with uh, with the neighbors over where they heard the scream come from. Wow. Uh, they were there for less than five minutes and, and, and left. So when it when it became clear about 18 months after Shannon uh, died that they uh, they had uh, not been paying attention to this guy's attacks, they had picked him up twice before he attacked Shannon on peeping Tom complaints, uh, but they uh, they didn't know there was a serial rapist uh, in the community, so they didn't they didn't take him in and and uh, collect DNA to see if he was linked to any of these cases. Mm. So we had some other things to focus on and to to try and and correct. <laughs> you know, just because we weren't going to spend the rest of our lives consumed by anger at the guy that actually choked her to death. Mm-hmm. Uh, the FBI profilers uh, looked into the case. Their conclusion was when he went into her apartment, he had no intention of killing her. But with the police standing there pounding on the door, uh, he strangled her uh, to keep her from crying out. Because if mm-hmm. she cried out, they would have broken the door down mm-hmm. and arrested them. So, you know, we, we had... Some other distractions sure. that that just because we weren't going to be consumed by anger didn't mean that we weren't going to work on trying to do things to make the system work more effectively. Mm-hmm. And, and so that became more of our focus than the anger at any individual person. They now have uh, advocacy groups that that review their every every year they review the uh, the police reports on the handling of sex crimes mm-hmm. uh, in Philadelphia. It's a relatively unique program really? across the country, and it all relates to what they discovered after Shannon's murder mm. because of how they had been treating these victims before Shannon was attacked. Yeah. I might, might add one other part. You know, we were, uh, I mentioned before that neither, uh, no one in either of our families opposed uh, the position we took uh, on the death penalty. Mm-hmm. We have gotten to know most of the other women who were attacked. There are two of them we have not met or talked to. Everyone supported the position we took mm. because not only did we not have to go through this prolonged, lengthy trial process, they also did not have to go to trial to uh, pursue his conviction. He was willing to, to, to plead guilty to their attacks as well. Mm-hmm. So, so they were, they were extremely supportive yep. uh, of, of our position. Yes, Out of all these people, there was only one, one of the victim's fathers was somewhat upset 
but none of the victims themselves uh, expressed any regret at all. Hmm. Yeah, it's amazing to me how, I, dare I say, so many positives have come in the aftermath of this terribly tragic situation. And it's no doubt your cooperation with God's grace that seems to have brought this about. But that doesn't take away, the, I'm sure, the tremendous sense of loss. Vicki, if I could ask you, how have you been able to find joy again? You mentioned that you had your other son, Sean, and um, obviously needed to continue to be parents to him and live and continue to live your life, even in Shannon's absence on this earth. So how have you been able to find joy again in the years that have followed? Uh, the grandchildren are right. Them. <laughs> you just can't begin to know the gifts that we have. <laughs> yeah. I, I, we're just so, so grateful. We just, uh, oh my gosh, we have three of them now and um, they are almost an image, Dan, almost an image, one fact, facet or another of Shannon. Huh. You know, I have a lot of her academic traits. The person, they just, you know, they're just like a gift to us because it's reliving some of Shannon and with us and um, they get to see how happy we are to be with them and they are you know very positive about this and it's a good oh wonderful experience we have also gotten to meet some other really fantastic individuals oh yeah through this process mm -hmm. Bud Welsh uh, is one of the people that, that comes to mind yeah. Bud Welsh is daughter Julie was killed in the Oklahoma City bombing mm. and it was it was his only daughter yep and you know he started down this path of anger and revenge and oh. wanting to to kill Timothy McVeigh and he was drinking and smoking and it ruined his marriage and you know after about a year you know he he had a dream one night and his daughter said dad you know he killed killed me you're gonna kill you too hmm. what's going on here mm -hmm. and and you may have heard the story about bud welsh you may not recognize the voice he was the guy that got in his car in oklahoma and drove up to new, upstate new york uh, and knocked on the door of of uh, timothy mcveigh's father and went in and had a, a long discussion with his father and sister and and tells this really poignant story wow. that when he when he got to the end of that meeting and stood up and was getting ready to leave and and timothy mcveigh's sister gave him this bear hug he said i realized that the cross that that was being born here was not my cross anymore it was their cross yeah that yeah. you know we've gotten to know sister helen prejean we've gotten to work with people at the Catholic Mobilizing Network, even opportunities to to kind of share the word through vehicles like Notre Dame Magazine. Uh, you know, the opportunity to, to show people that there's a better way uh, is an unbelievable, uh, an unbelievable gift. So, yeah. You know. and, and just little things will come back sometimes, you know, months or, you know, after a meeting or something said, Oh, I've had some time to think about what you've said. You know, you and your husband were saying, you know, saying, and I didn't agree with you. And then, you know, over time and watching different experiences, it really changed my way of thinking. And, oh, I just wanted to come back and tell you, thank mm. you, thank you. And you just don't, you can't ever explain to someone else what a gift that is to get. For many people, they don't think about this at all 
in the context of their religion, hmm. uh, of, of their upbringing, uh, there's kind of a disconnect. Yeah. And for most people, these, these things are just, they're very abstract. You know, there's some really bad guy out there that's done something extremely horrific. And, you know, you jump to a conclusion when you hear this, these gory stories, oh, my God, that person doesn't deserve to live. Mm. And Sister Helen Prashan, if you if you read her material, if you listen to her, she says that repeatedly. She says, yes, maybe they do not deserve to live. The question is, do we deserve to, to kill, kill them? them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the I think partly it's the understanding that I I think understanding we took the right we took the right path in the the split in the road we could have gone one way or the other, other. yeah and we were blessed old Yogi Berra saying uh, you come to a Y in the road take it right. well <laughs> there, there's two ways to go there and we we uh, we're lucky. either by luck. By somehow we we picked the right path for us. Thank you, God. Nothing we could have done would have brought Shannon back. Shannon, no, we know Shannon. That. Shannon is dead. You know, we mm. have done a lot in her memory because we oh. think she was an extremely good person. Yep. She she showed us in ways afterwards that we didn't understand how how good a person she was Hmm. and you can't begin to understand what a blessing it is that that you come back with that kind of surprise as to as opposed to you know a surprise that she was not a good person right right i mean it's just extremely gratifying yeah well and that is you know the pursuit of holiness is foundationally what this podcast is about and it sounds like even after her death you found and heard stories of Shannon's holiness and, and and encountered the holy lives of others who suffered similar tragedies. How would you both describe your own journey towards holiness, even in the midst of such a life-altering event such as this? Yeah, we're, <laughs> we're, we're, we're human beings, so we... Uh, Make we still uh, we still stumble from time to time. Right. Sure. But I I think in that that night for you know, my mom used to say God gives us crosses, but he gives us grace to uh, to carry them yeah. uh, in that night, in that setting in church, mm-hmm. saying the Lord's Prayer in a way I had never said it before was was this revealing <laughs> This revealing bright light that showed me which path to take. And, you know, again, some people think we've done something special or gracious or heroic. I think it's to our benefit simply, you know, I I look at the Sermon on the Mount as kind of the North Star of Christianity. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've been... Uh, We've been lucky enough. We we got to follow that, and it's it's been extremely rewarding for us. Yeah. And we we try to uh, thank God. We try to pursue it to the extent that we can. There's a lot. There's a lot in that story that most people don't don't focus on. And I we were forced to look at it in a way we hadn't before, and and it's it was a lifeline for us. Mm-hmm.
Vicki, how about for you? How would you? And it's a good for us to have each other, too, because we can talk about these things when they're hard and they're, you know, or, or I'm having a little trouble tonight, honey. Could you give me a little support about this issue or whatever? It's just a, such a gift to have us both having the same feelings and support. And it's, oh, man, it's like, it, to me, it's the best grace I've had in my whole life. Mm. <laughs> Amen. Well, thank you. That That's inspirational to hear your your story in that. Just as a last question specifically related to this, you know, the normal course of order is that, you know, your legacy and family is passed down through children and grandchildren, but you've had this instance of turning this around that you have been charged with carrying forth Shannon's legacy. And in some ways, I, I think of her as um, also, you know, a third guest on this podcast that her life and legacy has been, has been, you know, shown through, through your telling of this story. Oh, thank you. Anything that you'd like to share in terms of what you think Shannon's legacy uh, will, will continue to be? You know, we, we, as I mentioned, we have done some things in, uh, in her memory. Vicki was with Sister Helen Prejean early on in the establishment of the Catholic Mobilizing Network. Uh, Sister Helen was uh, a little concerned uh, back in the, the 90s, the early 90s, uh, that the church uh, was not taking a strong enough position on uh, on capital punishment. And she went over and she talked to Pope John Paul II and maybe helped spur some of his uh, mm-hmm. statements and, and came back and was concerned that the bishops weren't speaking out enough and mm-hmm. formed the Catholic Mobilizing Network, which the bishops now support. And and we we have continued to make uh, contributions yep. uh, to that group. They're, they're actually now sponsoring a, uh, a research project, and I think Notre Dame's going to provide some support for it. Loyola University in, in Chicago is supporting it. Uh, Georgetown uh, University in, in Washington. So some of the Catholic Academy is is getting involved mm-hmm. in trying to understand Catholics' attitudes toward uh, toward the death penalty, yeah. uh, with the hope that we can uh, improve the presentation uh, uh, to people on on what this is all about, mm-hmm. uh, and and how to get people to look at it. More Christianly, I guess, is uh, the best way I can. And and so we've made contributions like that. We we live in the, in Frederick, Maryland. Uh, we live. Uh, we're members of the oldest parish in the oldest diocese in the United States. Now okay. it's not the first parish in the United States, no. but it's the oldest parish in the oldest diocese of the United States. Okay. And we recently had the, the church was built in the 1830s. Uh, we recently had to make some renovations uh, on the bell tower. And we, we made a contribution in, in Shannon's name, and renovation of the bells to call people to prayer. So. We, you know, we've done some things uh, to try and keep her name and and help people uh, think about her in a in a positive uh, in a positive way. She was she was very Christian in the way she uh, conducted her life. Uh, one of the one of the last stories we heard about her uh, a weekend or two before she died. She and a 
school friend were supposed to go to mass, meet for mass uh, on Sunday morning, uh, and then they were going to go to breakfast. Well, Shannon shows up uh, uh, for mass with this little old fellow in tow. And the story was that on her way home uh, on Saturday afternoon, she she had found this uh, fellow struggling with his groceries, uh, and she helped him get him uh, into his apartment, uh, and his wife had died. He was he was an older man, probably in his eighties, hmm. and he uh, he was struggling with life. And she she helped him get his groceries in and put away, and said, "Well, why don't you why don't you go to church with me in the morning, and then we'll go to breakfast together." Hmm. Now you know she she nobody nobody would have known that she did that. Yeah, the night she died. There were a group of students at West uh, Philadelphia Catholic High School who were sponsoring a, uh, a little gift reception for her, and they were extremely disappointed that she didn't show up. Well, she didn't show up because she was now dead. Hmm. Uh, but she had gone completely, totally on her own voluntary basis and, and ran a, a special class for them all during that school year while she was extremely busy herself with her own academic studies, teaching these inner city high school kids about basic economic issues, mm-hmm. uh, what stocks are, what bonds are, how to do a budget, how to do a bank account. You know, things that she didn't have to do. She didn't tell us about any of it. Yes, we, we, learned, we learned about these things after she died. Mm. What better gift yes. can one be given oh, thank you. Uh, than, than to learn those kinds of stories. Yeah. It's just amazing. And and that's why I think we feel so obligated uh, to do some of the things we've done. We're doing. Mm-hmm. She she was she was a good person. She was doing right. Her her journey was cut short. We we have a bigger responsibility ourselves now because of it. Hmm. And she reminds us of that from time to time. <laughs> every time we go by here in the ferry, where all these beautiful bells, and we, every time you hear those bells ring, I'd say, "Okay, Shannon, uh, what were you trying to tell us? Something? Is there something you need? <laughs> Please let us know. We'll do anything we can." <laughs> wow. Well, this has just been completely inspiring and touching. Thank you both for taking the time to again share this story with us, as difficult as it is, and. You know, I hope that anyone uh, who's hearing this will really take into account uh, your words and your counsel to two people who have lived a life uh, together and, and lived through a tragedy that really we, we can hardly imagine. I, I think this will do a lot of good and, and, and move hearts and, and help people understand while we can't take away uh, the tragedy sometimes that happens, um, how we respond to them is really important as we you know struggle to work out our own salvation and know of our prayers for your family. And we'll ask Shannon to pray for all of us as we uh, continue these efforts and, and share these stories. And just again, thank you very much for taking the time to share the story with our audience. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. We really, really appreciate the time. And go Irish. (laughs) Go Irish. Absolutely. Shannon's license plate, which we, we still have. On another car, yeah. Was eight, the number eight, eight. 
Irish 8th. She was born on August, month of August 8th. And uh, so that was always her favorite number, and that was her lucky number, she always says. so. <laughs> That's wonderful. Yes, she's certainly, her stories and life live on in, in things like this. So glad to be a part of that. Well, that concludes this episode of Everyday Holiness, a Faith Indie podcast. Uh, we'd encourage you to share this episode with any family and friends who you think might benefit from it. And of course, we always invite you to subscribe to our daily gospel reflection at faith.nd.edu slash sign up, where in that email, we tell people of new episodes of the podcast. But we thank you for joining us today. And until next time, you will be in our prayers. Mm -hmm.